Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. I think we'll go ahead and get started, if that's okay. Uh, it's 11.30. My name is Julia Wadicheryl. I am so grateful to be with you today. Um, can I just do a little sound check? If you're in the back row, I'm a notorious low talker. Can you wave at me if you can hear me? Awesome. All right. And... Uh, I aim to practice what I'm going to talk about, so if you don't mind bowing your heads with me, um, I'm going to talk a lot about prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to share time and space with you and my fellow brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you'd move me out of the way, that you'd use uh, any form of communication that I can, verbal and nonverbal, to communicate how much you love these children um, to them. And Lord, that you would help me confess and repent over the way uh, the authority that I bring through the power that I have, um, through academics, through titles, Lord, that I would repent openly in front of them if any of them have been injured in the process. So I ask you, Father, um, to be with us, Jesus, um, to advocate and uh, implore the Father on our behalf. And Holy Spirit, would you just saturate this room? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so I spoke at Jubilee in 2017, and I took some take-home messages away. Um, There are lots of take-home messages. I will talk to you like a lecturer to some degree, but I will also talk to you as a perpetual student who's taken a lot of notes, mostly on paper in my day, uh, and a lot of syllabi. So um, take-home messages are important. Um, I'm also, I set my timer so that we'd have 15 minutes at the end for Q&A because that was something that I got a lot of feedback around. Um, Again, if there's ever any trouble with hearing me, uh, I'm a fast talker and sometimes a low talker. Wave. I like a lot of interaction. I need affirmation, so nod. And if you fall asleep, lean on your buddy so I don't see you uh, slide out of your chair. Okay? (laughs) So the goal for for today, um, and I will hearken back to some of the main points that I made in 2017, um, the, the process of spiritual growth is a perpetual one, so I hope to give you some insights Um, But I also am just going to concentrate on three big areas. And these are the three that um, I'll issue some disclaimers, that medical students, residents, and fellows, those are who I usually interact with. Um, But because I do transplant, I get exposed to social workers, physical therapists, counselors, financial services. So in any aspect of healthcare, um, I hope there's a, a broad representation, and this isn't just restricted to people that are interested in medical school. So the three times that people call me in, mentees, um, sometimes mentors, uh, are over these three areas, discernment and decision-making, either in the heat of the moment. I have to make a decision on rank lists or what I'm going to do. Can you help me? Um, Delivering the gospel, that comes up a lot. I grew up Southern Baptist in the evangelical church and have moved towards the Reform and now Anglican tradition. So I had a broad swath of exposure to different things, um, but I would say that the most underestimated role I call my MVP is the role of the Holy Spirit. And so I'll hope to give you some, some uh, insights that I learned I feel too late in life. And then, uh, so delivering the gospel both to colleagues and to patients, that comes up a lot in terms of the pressure that sometimes Christians feel. Um, I hope to alleviate a lot of that pressure for you because the moments birth themselves in reality. And then preparation for the path ahead. 
Most people that are interested in any form of healthcare or medicine feel the pressure cooker environment of having to make decisions for 15 years in advance. Um, that is part of what I want to repent over. Um, our, our system does that. I hope that we can change the system. Um, I am encouraged by seeing the faces in this room that there will be collective power in changing some of the, the ways that we um, harm people along the way. So, uh, and then 15, 20 minutes at the end, and I'll, li- I'll linger for people that are like me and introverted and don't want to ask your questions in public. All right, so on discernment and decision-making. This is, uh, I'm not sure what uh, range of um, how many, what the distribution is in the room in terms of people that are first years versus um, already applied and committed to a graduate school program, but this is a, an area that I think comes up a lot. And the one thing that I would say that's most important is the emphasis on calling and finding your caller. Calling is very dependent on your relationship with the caller, and we get that out of order, and we pressure students in ways that I think can be unhealthy. There's an underemphasis on your relationship with the caller, because once you understand that relationship, the definitions around what you're going to do really don't matter that much. Um, I say that knowing that there's an immense amount of pressure on you to understand what it is that you want to commit your life to. So let me, uh, I'll try to give some stories along the way. One of my friend's daughters uh, just matched to NYU Law School. I'm originally from Texas. She's, uh, I met them through uh, a church that I was part of in, in Houston. And I asked her, uh, in anticipation of coming to talk to you today, um, matching for graduate school, I said, what are the, what are the one or two things that uh, are most anxiety-provoking, bothersome, stressful um, to what was it to you as an undergraduate? And one of the things that she named was the sense of being too far along in the process to go backwards that you are too committed to change trajectories. So I can tell you as a mid-stage career person, that's fundamentally not true. That's becoming more untrue. Yes, debt is a problem. Yes, commitment is a problem. Yes, um, what you are trained to do does equip you in certain ways. But please understand that the work of the Holy Spirit can move you from healthcare to writing to journalism to law. And more and more, once you get to a certain stage and you are equipped with spiritual leadership skills, those skills transcend industries. And I say that I know being significantly older and longer in the tooth than you are, but know that that's true and it's becoming more and more untrue. Um, the, 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 the lie that once you're on track to do X, Y, Z, that you have to do it until you're 85 years old. I think that I am reinforced in that because I live in New York City and people change jobs every two to three years, quite and oftentimes industries. And so I, I get an influx of people that are looking to change between not just science and healthcare, but finance. Uh, a lot of physicists are in finance. Um, and how uh, your mind and trajectory is being trained right now is actually being equipped for multiple industries. So if I can alleviate that sense for you, um, that you are in too deep, that you spent too much money, I can't take away your family expectations, society expectations, et cetera, et cetera. But you know who can? God the Father. And that is why it is so fundamentally important 
that your relationship with your caller undergirds everything else because it will give you power and confidence to do things that are radically contra to your family, to your generational expectations, to your cultural expectations, to what your pastor and other people of authority expect of you. And I'm not saying that as an insurgent. I'm saying that as someone who's learned um, confidence in Christ. So if any of your pastors say, where did you get this attitude from, you can blame me. So um, in making decisions and discerning uh, what your next step is, if I could put you in an incubator and ask you to learn one thing over the next five to ten years, and where I see disclosure again, I'm largely mentored by 50 to 80-year-old predominantly white men. I predominantly mentor 90 to 95% women of color. And so being in this nexus, I get a lot of above and I hate to say it as above and below. It's not a hierarchy, but in some de- to some degree it is. But the lies that are operating in both spheres, believers and non, are exactly the same. Uh, my billionaire patients that work on Wall Street um, are not very different from my barely English-speaking, underserved um, 18 to 20-year-olds from the Bronx. The lies that are operating in society are very similar. And what we have as believers, what I hope to tattoo on your hearts more so than your brains, is the spiritual privilege that we have. We may not have financial privilege, we may not have skin color privilege, we may not have hair texture privilege, but you do, as a child of God, have spiritual privilege. That got tattooed on my heart fairly recently on retreat. And so I hope that when your identity gets shaken through a uh, rejection on a letter, through a bad review of a manuscript that you write, through a harsh word from someone like me who's further along on the trajectory than you are, um, if you get humiliated on rounds for not knowing something, that you go back to the items on the left. Okay, that's what I try to affirm, both in my um, non-believing mentees, which is the vast majority of them, and people that subscribe to some form of Christianity. So, um, and I'll enumerate them. So, Identity formation, again, if you spend five minutes every day to three hours every day, this is the crux of what gets shaken uh, through the process that you're now in and will be on for a very, very long time. So if you can remember and have people around you who remind you that you are a beloved child of God, and I know the language around being an heir of God and co-heir with Christ was very hard for me. I didn't um, grow up thinking that I had uh, heir status in any way, shape, or form, that you were purchased at a price, and that's already done and complete. And I speak to you both uh, knowing that there are people who grew up in the church, maybe on a trajectory like I was to become a missionary, and then all of a sudden um, something else happens, and you realize that God might be calling you into a different sphere. So understand that these types of undergirdings of your identity are constantly going. Um, That you are worthy. The entire process that you're part of right now, if you're in any way or shape headed towards medicine, is going to attack that worthiness. It's going to make you perpetually feel like you are unworthy of being at the school that you are, of being in the groups that you are, of being in this room. 
I'm sure that there are one or two of you at least that are questioning why or the, the voice in your mind is, is saying you don't deserve to be there. You're not going to get into medical school. You're not going to get into XYZ. You don't have the grades. You don't have this, that, or the other. There is a healthy amount of questioning that's reality. There's a, there's a very unhealthy, evil insidiousness that can attack your core worth. And so for people um, in your community groups at, the, at Jubilee and hopefully at your home school, affirming individual worthiness and being seen in the way that God sees another individual is fundamental to undoing that lie. Um, the process is not questionable. It doesn't get shaken. It's sealed. It's locked down. It doesn't matter how many people, how many gray hairs, how um, much of an endowment, whatever it is that the institution or process is telling you your worth is very different than what God is communicating that you're worth. I cannot tell you, the reason I'm emphatic about this is this is the, the lie that sort of steals people along the way, that, that makes them believe that they're not, they're not part of the process. And I, I firmly admit that I believed part of it along the way, and that's partly why I'm so emphatic, because it's fundamentally not true. Okay? These are the things that people have either expressed um, to me overtly, and it could be someone on their deathbed, a patient, it most often is a colleague. Um, these are the lies that they're believing, that they're unwanted, that they are unwanted when they were born, that they're unwanted currently in their relationships, um, that they're not desirable, um, that they're alone in the process, that they're disconnected, that they don't matter. That's the point of enti- the entire Jubilee process is that every part of your life, every sense that you um, possess matters, and how we communicate mattering to one another is critically important. And this is not, I speak a lot about colleagues because in academic medicine, healthcare in general, we bend over backwards to take care of our patients. Um, we cannot do that at the expense of our colleagues. I remember training in the beginning and thinking, oh, so-and-so is a redemptive doctor because he's really good with patients, but he's a jerk to his colleagues. And I made it okay in my mind that you could do one and and not the other. It is not okay. (laughs) It is not okay to treat your colleagues differently than your patients. And you will observe that um, as you all help hold us accountable um, and calling it out either on rounds or privately. Um, Those are the types of things where an integrity internal and external is held accountable by people who are observing what is true and juxtaposing it by what is not true. Okay? Um, Extinguishable, um, the the link in the app um, goes to a humanizing medicine talk from the faith and work group that I did in 2013. And I quoted Rachel Naomi Remen. Um, you'll see her again in this slide set. And it talks about what we'll go into a little bit more about moral injury and how it occurs in healthcare. And when you have a calling and you're clear on it, and your calling is to serve another human, and that could be a host of different realities. Um, but that calling gets diminished by the environment that you're in day after day, minute after minute, encounter after encounter. You start to lose touch with that calling. And that's where you see addiction, abuse, uh, maltreatment occur, either inflicted towards an individual self, burnout, suicidality, 
um, harming patients, harming colleagues. Um, it has a very fundamental root. So how do we create better environments where we don't extinguish someone's calling? That's something I ask myself repeatedly, hour by hour, meeting by meeting, um, being at the bottom of the totem pole in some meetings and the top in others. Um, that you're forgotten, that's another lie. Um, and then ones that are operating in you that I don't know about. Uh, how do you get there? How do you expose the lies that you're believing about yourself? Uh, this is tough. <laughs> um, oftentimes, those lies have very, very um, nobly intended roots. Those lies sometimes get implanted in our churches, false teachings, um, through uh, relationships, hierarchical relationships that espouse one thing over another. Um, your sense of worth is determined by grades, uh, funding, whatever it is that the pecking order in the world that you're living in is um, supplanting. Exposing lies generally happens. I'll speak to you specifically about the process that I've been on through a lot of spiritual teaching. And one of the lies that I believed for a very long time is that God was judging me by what I did rather than who I was. So again, uh, I want to underscore the point about identity. And when I, you'll see the, the language, God cares more about who you are than what you do. He cares about both, but the emphasis, the um, pressure that we put oftentimes through the questions that we ask is much more about human doings than human beings. Who are you um, is not necessarily answered with a beloved child of God as much as it is, I'm a doctor, or I'm a mother, or I'm a XYZ, fill in the blank. I see some nodding. Is everyone okay? So um, calling, discernment, uh, decision-making, I'll give you some tools at the end, but specifically for that, uh, helping you filter the noise, uh, increase the signal-to-noise ratio is how I describe it to myself. Signal being truth, uh, how do you get more truth, and how uh, the more truth that you're imbibing, the clearer-eyed you are about dispelling the lies. Um, And truth is not something that happens in a vacuum. So speaking about what's operating to you, in you, and around you, to people who share a common um, worldview is critically important because that's where some of the correction and lie exposure occurs. So before I leave that point, let me say that. So delivering the gospel. There was an inordinate amount of pressure that I felt years and years ago, hopefully the church is doing a much better job now, Uh, of you have to deliver the gospel to your patients. You have to deliver the gospel to your colleagues. Let me just free you a little bit for those of you that feel like, oh man, I didn't open up scripture and write it on my patient's hand. Um, You may not be interacting with patients yet. Or I didn't, um, my roommate uh, expressed suicidal ideation or self-harm and I didn't step in and do something. Um, There's... The, the sense of over-spiritualization that can sometimes happen in the church. We don't ignore things like science and pharmacology in what we do, but boy, is there a lot to be gained by spiritual healing. And so I'm speaking specifically around that topic when I talk about delivering the gospel. So I think we're all wise enough to know uh, what tone deafness sounds like, 
if you, I, I don't tweet, but I'm on Twitter, and I just see how some people respond with no relational attunement, and I'm sure I've done it countless times myself. So to smack someone with scripture when they're not ready to hear it is harmful. And that's how Christians um, can harm non-believers. Um, I know, so I grew up very churched, um, but in, a, in an environment that looked very different from me. So I was always felt to feel like I, I didn't belong or that I wasn't Christian, um, even though I knew the gospel um, and made my profession of faith young. Um, the relationship of what a Christian looks like, very much like what an American looks like or what a girl looks like or what a boy looks like these days, um, can sometimes be relationally misattuned. So when you are with someone in a vulnerable position and know that you have power, you have a lot of power, um, when you steward that power very, very well, oftentimes what it looks like is love. So the question I ask myself the most when I'm with a colleague, when I'm with someone really powerful who's intimidating, when I'm with a patient who's very vulnerable and about to die, is how do I love this person? And it's hard. It requires that you get to know them. Um, Number one step in getting to know somebody is listening. Creating a safe place. I think 30 to 50% of my new patients cry within the first 15 minutes of us sitting together. And I think it has to do with the fact that many people don't listen anymore. The door is shut. It's silent. I'm not looking at the computer. I'm looking at them. And for better or for worse, um, I have a lot of power in that relationship. And when people are in a room with someone who's intending to protect and help them, and they feel safe, a lot of things come out. And I will tell you, um, many of you probably engage in um, spiritual direction or counseling. I didn't at your age, and I wish I had. Um, that you're never trained in how to counsel when you become a healthcare provider. So when people ask me what would I do to change healthcare, I would mandate counseling for everyone who's, who's a healthcare provider or on track for it. Because the, the best Um, way of learning how to counsel is to be counseled yourself. And a lot of it happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. But a lot of it happens through the eyes and ears and listening stance of someone who is committed to loving you. So um, listening is critically important. And I'm a quantitative type. I do a lot of science. So just as a survey for yourself, Um, look at an hour-long conversation that you have with someone or sitting with someone for an hour and just reflect on how many of those minutes you're talking and how many of those minutes you're listening Um, and just do a little bit of a self-study. It's a a good way. Um, And it's going to be easier for some of you than others um, because many people process information very differently, um, but attentive listening is one of the most loving things you can ever do. The only way you can be relationally attuned to your friends, your colleagues, your future patients, anyone that you hope to love or serve, um, is to understand how they metabolize love. It's very, very different for every person. Um, And we can harm them a lot along the way if we don't take the time to understand it. And you will. Relationships require um, fits and starts. And so there will be bumps along the way. But again, as we're going to talk about with moral injury, there's injury and there's repair. 
I love the liver because it can take a beating. I'm a liver doctor. Uh, it can take a beating, and it generally will always heal itself, um, shy of end-stage liver disease. And so when I think about injury and repair, I think of a lot of good things that happen uh, when the liver gets injured. Uh, there's oftentimes the injury and inflammation is a healing response. Um, the scar tissue will develop, but it also melts away. And I'll, I'll push on that analogy a little bit further along the way. Uh, one other point that I'd like to make on delivering the gospel. Um, someone had emailed me as an undergraduate who was rotating at um, one of our hospitals. We, we didn't connect three years ago, but he emailed me, and we've become sort of email buddies along the way. I finally met him last month. Um, and he struggled with this. Um, in the idea of uh, pursuing health care, should I address it as at the administrative level? Um, should I totally be involved in revamping the health care model, make it more justice-oriented? Yes, please, we need more of that too. Um, but his internal pressure, what I was hearing, is an anxiety over um, having the, the burden, the Christian burden, of um, delivering the gospel to people around him. And what I told him, um, and hopefully I can articulate this in words better than email, is one of our jobs in our industry, no matter what it is, is to create a little bit of moral tension, cognitive dissonance, about why you do what you do as a Christian. The most often asked question of me at this stage in my environment is, why do you stay? Oftentimes. And I can articulate a... Um, this is how I engage with God. Uh, I check in with him at this frequency, and this is the rhythm with which I do so. You will not be able to obey your calling, again, unless you are firmly assured that God is your father, yours, that he is good, and that he wants good things for you. And I have to say, I did not. Be- I thought I believed that as a good Christian, but it was through undoing some lies about really... I didn't believe that God was that good. Uh, If some awful things were allowed to happen to me and other people, I really questioned his goodness. But again, creating space where you can ask those difficult questions, both in your heart and in your groups, is critically important towards spiritual growth. That's the only way. And trust me, God's got a lot of room for a lot of anger um, and a lot of questions. So you cannot give what you do not have. Um, I saw in the book table... Um, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. It's one of my favorites. I bought it for my group um, fairly recently. Many of you are on leadership paths, whether you know it. Um, Leader is behavior. It's not positional authority. You're familiar with the three forms of authority, possessional authority, positional authority, and spiritual authority. I hope that everyone in this room is on a path towards spiritual authority. It does not matter what, how much money is in your bank account. Um, it does not matter what title. Uh, again, when I say it does not matter, in the world it does. Um, I'm speaking spiritually here. When you have spiritual authority, there is a, a system that's operating around you that's independent of those other forms of authority. And so you cannot give what you do not have is that spiritual cauldron that I wish I could put all of you in. Um, like an incubator. Uh, I wish I could protect you from the things of the world and just, again, tattoo on your heart and in your brain until it gets integrated enough. But the human in me, the realist in me, knows that you can't learn those things independent of the world. 
you have to have all of the insults and injury come your way and be able to respond and not react to them in order to grow. Um, it is not an either or. So spiritual formation. Uh, a lot of churches are focused on this. Um, I, I didn't grow up in a church that, that focused on spiritual formation. It, there was a lot of emphasis on duties and service, which is in and of itself good, but can sometimes be a distraction to really understanding what God's doing in your heart. So uh, my MVP, not just mine, I think everyone's, um, is the power of the Holy Spirit, raise Christ from the dead, still the most disruptive technology known in my, in my life. And I write that to my um, colleagues who are non-believers all the time. Um, understanding the work of the Holy Spirit, being able to pause and look at where the Spirit is moving in your present environment is critically important. So I took my first faculty appointment in August of 2011, and it was 2014, and I thought I was being a dutiful Christian, you know, trying to do good work, heal disease, do good research, mentor, uh, be mentored, um, and it was 2014 when the penny dropped for me. The, the most important thing that I could be doing as faculty at Columbia is praying for the salvation of my colleagues. And once I that penny dropped and I realized that's more important than healing a gazillion people or developing 8,000 drugs for this disease with no treatment, that uh, was a spiritual penny drop that I knew that uh, with greater certainty than any scientific fact that I had been taught. And it completely changed my relationship with my workplace. It completely changed how I relate to my colleagues who are non-believers and really sort of blew up the whole spiritual privilege idea is that I have access to the throne and should be imploring God the Father on their behalf much more than I am. Uh, It was extremely uh, humbling to me, who always thought, oh, I didn't go to an Ivy League. I don't really belong here. Uh, Do they really know that they uh, allowed someone to be hired who didn't go to Harvard or Columbia? How long are they, you know, when is this whole, you know, gig going to be up? But again, believing that God put me there for very specific reasons and was patient enough with me until that penny dropped was critically important. I like visuals a lot. I know there was talk about habit. Forgive me for not remembering the author of the book that was mentioned last night. Um, I'll I'll caution you about one thing. So I always was raised with the whole idea of scripture first thing in the morning. Um, This was before cell phones. So it was scripture before you talk to anybody in the morning. Let me just um, caution you um, when you start to form habits. Habits are great, but people do what they do for specific reasons. So before you adopt a habit or when you adopt a habit, it can easily become a new idol if you're not careful. So all of a sudden you start uh, slavishly reading scripture, not imbibing it in the spirit, but doing it as a box to check. Let me just caution you there because most people in this room, I imagine, are very dutiful students and want to get a 4.0 or whatever it is now, 4.2, 4.5 that you can get, um, in order to uh, achieve certain things, that performance ideology can also enter your spiritual habits. So I just want you to be careful there. 
when you adopt a new habit or as you evaluate what is operating, and I use my alarm clock on my phone, so I'm very tempted to do the same thing, start reading my emails. But because my emails contain so-and-so vomited blood and is going to the ER, I am very quick to know that I need to fill my morning before I engage in work with how loved I am, all the lies that are going to be undone by noon, um, that are going to be done, I should say, by noon, um, how loved I am, how worthy I am, how my worth is not determined based on how many patients I keep alive versus dead versus how many research grants I get funded versus not. So how does this look? Um, that's a 2013 picture um, from a train in Sweden, I think. I travel. Uh, again, this is for me. It's an example of what it might be like for you, of where you start to get fed spiritually. I'm an introvert, so I spend a lot of time by myself, um, and I feel like God speaks most clearly oftentimes when the world is cut out, and I think that's true for everybody. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. But Kleenex, water, journal, Bible, um, not technology oftentimes. Obviously, I had it there because I took a picture with my phone. Um, but uh, on the plane here yesterday, um, my, my spiritual mom calls it my moving sanctuary. You will find your time and your space that is protected from the world where the Holy Spirit can massage truth into your heart. Um, so travel is a big one for me. Uh, I retreat every quarter to a monastery. And the picture in the middle, uh, two chairs. Um, I have gone there now for over five years. Um, and as I walk the grounds, um, I can remember lies that I was believing, scripture as it descended, and how different my life is that, since that last quarter. Repeating ground, um, uh, community ground, seeing faces that are familiar to you and friends, um, walking the same trajectory on campus, Put your little Ebenezer down, your little memory stone of what you were struggling with at that particular time. I admit I don't journal enough, but I take pictures. And within taking a picture, I can remember the emotional context of what I was struggling with. And when I go back, that is how I, I remember in my heart that I doubted God, and then three months later, what actually happened. Um, and the faith struggle in that three-month period of time. You need things like that in order to spiritually remember because our hearts are tempted to forget within the course of minutes to hours, but also in the cor courses of months to years. And then on the right, the one that I struggled with the most is community. I, I struggled with um, being vulnerable in front of other humans, just like everyone else. There's shame operating, obviously, that you're unwanted, unlovable, all the stuff that the enemy wants you to believe is just lies from the pit of hell. Um, and so these are three individuals that we see each other. We talk about social justice things all the time. One's an influencer, one's in finance, one works at a nonprofit and at church. We are completely different individuals. But if there's someone in this room that you are um, in a tangential relationship with, you didn't come from the same school, but you want to know better, I encourage you, exchange. Uh, it's hard to find like-minded people the older that you get. So exchange information, and you would be surprised in 20 years how um, just now I got a text from a friend in California who's praying for this meeting right now and sending you lots of love because all I had to say is XYZ uh, at this time and she, she doesn't need more context than that. It doesn't need to be a paragraph text. 
Um, those kinds of spiritual friendships, I never anticipated having so many from New York, um, and I do, but I encourage you. I, I didn't do things like this when I was in college, so if you are like-minded, similar worldviews, similar struggles, some of you are this close to abandoning the faith. Some of you don't understand how much Jesus loves you, and someone in this room does, and that type of connection absolutely has to happen. Okay, to the point, how does moral injury occur? So it was that same college student that gave me the idea for this talk. So uh, don't underestimate the power you have over your faculty. Uh, So moral injury, the the way it was described in psychological literature, um, largely from military trauma, perpetrating, failing to prevent, or bearing witness to acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations may be deleterious in the long term emotionally, psychologically, behaviorally, spiritually, and socially. The point of this room, this talk, this hour, is to address some of the spiritual basis of that. Know that moral injury is occurring to your colleagues who don't understand the gospel, um, who may not understand or know or have had the privilege to to be uh, around believers, um, around affirming individuals, period. So um, moral injury occurs in individuals, I think, oftentimes, um, public service, um, military training, healthcare-type workers, um, because of the strong sense of calling and service that we have to fellow human beings, and that we would pretty quickly sacrifice our own well-being to help take care of someone else. That's generally who, who gets called into medicine. When you're unable to do that well, because of limitations that are placed on you um, by the system, by the hierarchy, by cost, uh, that hurts. It hurts your calling. It hurts your heart. It hurts your nobility. It hurts your future. It hurts your hope. Um, And so how do we deal with that in the industry that we're in is sort of the point. So where injury can become scar, this is outside the liver. So there's a certain amount of rolling with the punches. I roll my eyes all the time internally when I meet someone that doesn't have a lot of resilience in healthcare uh, because hardly anything is perfect. It's not a perfect system. And there's a certain amount of resilience that comes with rolling with the punches, things not being on time, extra lab draws, um, inconveniences and delays. Um, suboptimal working conditions, not deprivation of water or access to toilets, that's inhumane, um, but uh, non-ideal. Computer systems that are, are defunct, um, interfaces that aren't ideal, yes, there are multiple things wrong that need to be fixed. What I have observed and experienced that is completely not okay um, is abuse. So where injury becomes scar, and I mean permanent scar, Um, Permanent in the world sense, nothing's permanent in the godly sense, is dehumanizing speech or actions. This is where Christians are really, really needed in every industry. Um, What does not resonate with what you are affirmed of in the morning before you get to work, um, where you know that you are made in the image of God, you are beloved, you are affirmed, and and, uh, you are bought at a price. When that gets cheapened in you, with demoralizing speech, dehumanizing actions, uh, racism, sexism, harassment, discrimination abound in every industry. When that internal uh, dissonance happens, either in you or in a colleague, it is very, very important 
to respond to that. And how you respond to that needs to be guided by the Holy Spirit. Every response is going to be different. There's nothing I can say. Uh, Yes, it's wrong, but the way of dealing with wrongness is very, very different and nuanced based on each circumstance. Um, Lack of safety, I I mentioned a little bit because that's the environment in which moral injury can occur. So the lack of physical safety for some individuals, mental safety, psychological safety. Um, I would say that the academic environment is not terribly psychologically safe. Most of the language that we have um, can be quite destructive to tearing people down, and we do it in the sense of tearing the work down. But because identity is tied to work in what we do, it becomes personal real fast. So now you see why I want your identity rooted in what's true. Because if people besmirch your work, um, criticize your, your writing or your productivity or something that you did, it doesn't hurt so much because that's not who you are. It's a product of something that you've created and it has a lot to do with their understanding of what good and bad is. But that's where some of the internal resilience can develop. So um, in response to that, I wish I could lock you up and make sure that your identity is secure before I put you out in the world, which is not reality. Um, You actually are going to be better off if you are in the world and responding to it in these microsecond challenges and sometimes uh, decade-long challenges. Uh, Here's a quote. Wounding and healing are not opposites. They're part of the same thing. It is our wounds that enable us to be compassionate with the wounds of others. It is our limitations that make us kind to the limitations of other people. It is our loneliness that helps us to find other people or to even know they're alone with an illness. I think I have served people perfectly with parts of myself I used to be ashamed of. I can't say amen enough to this. And the most skilled people that you will have the privilege to observe practicing the healing art of medicine or the healing arts, period, are individuals who have acknowledged um, their wounds, their shame, their limitations. So I wanted to, to... also liberate some of the anxiety that I feel um, from undergraduate and even medical students. And that's what's being asked of them sometimes feels um, too much in terms of brain maturation. And I don't say that in a pejorative sense at all. Um, There is a concept. uh, Richard Rohr is one of my favorite authors, and he writes in one of, I think I'll have to reference the, the actual title of the book a little bit later, Um, First half of life versus second half of life. And the transition occurs somewhere around the age of 30 to 35 for most individuals. First half of life thinking is exactly um, what we, how we try to, to teach kids. What's safe, what's not safe. Don't touch that, that's hot. It's very black and white. Here are the rules. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. And then through life, through experience, through hurt, through, through recovery, um, you realize that you can actually, there, there's a lot of gray area in life, both within you and in the people that you're taking care of. And you can actually hold things that are seeming opposites from your early brain in your later brain. And so that's the second half of life. It's also um, in, in uh, neurological terms, um, uh, the dualistic mind versus the non-dualistic mind. So the dualistic mind being very separate, 
uh, one way or the other. The non-dual way of thinking is being able to hold things in tension that seem to be opposites. That's a skill that you are learning right now that I sometimes feel we put pressure on you to have before your brain's gotten there yet. Um, and for some people, you know, that ability to shift from dual to non-dual doesn't happen until their 60s and 70s. But one of the things that helps you understand and metabolize things that seem to be tense and opposite is the work of the Holy Spirit, but also um, injury and how you respond and deal with injury. And again, in the spiritual sense, um, dealing with harm that's inflicted, um, mistreatment and abuse, and I'm not saying create a safe space for it in any sense, but being able to filter it through many veins, through physical veins, environmental veins, through um, spiritual veins as well. Uh, helpful tools. I have to say that people in medicine and healthcare seem to be wired a lot like people in finance in terms of the ways that our brains work, but our motivations are very different. So these are some of the tools that I, um, the whole tree I've espoused at some point in my spiritual journey. Um, but there are some that people that tend to do to process a lot um, log- that through the brain sometimes need uh, permission to be able to process things in different ways. Remember, God gave us bodies. He gave us breath. He gave us muscles. Um, and a lot of spiritual formation is just like muscle growth, believe it or not. And so you start with micro-movements, and then you work towards bigger goals over time. But it can be incredibly overwhelming to think about doing a week long of silence, if I were to tell you, if you don't have a silent meditation practice now. But if I were to say, do two minutes of silence um, at some point today as homework, I think most of you could actually do it. Just turn everything off and just breathe. Slowing down is going to help you um, with your spiritual attunement, with your relational attunement, especially when it comes with patience because they're coming to you with a very different sense of energy and expectation than you're bringing to the table in terms of getting your eighth person done for the day and making it through the calendar, et cetera. It's their one experience of disease and dying often. It is not their thousandth. That might be your perspective. So the contemplative practices of centering prayer and meditation, can't emphasize those enough. Slowing down, the Holy Spirit does not um, make you pant through the day. It's actually a, a much more measured, thoughtful way of doing things. My spiritual mom told me seven psalms about five years ago. So writing your own psalms is ambitious, but I think a worthy thing to do for now. If you're in any form of crisis or stress or anxiety, the psalms are pretty amazing. So find your, your favorite seven. And uh, oftentimes my text is SOS, three letters. That's all it takes to send to my spiritual partners. They know to start praying. For me, either the seven Psalms or Romans 8 is my favorite chapter. They know where all the lies that I'm tempted to believe are. And they immediately, pretty much every time zone of the world now, um, can start praying. I know I'm under threat. I know that I'm uh, not in a good place. And I know that I need other people. And it doesn't take much. It takes a lot of relational maturity to be able to, to let people in like that. But boy, do you start to feel like the gates of heaven are open and there is a rallying cry of people that are supporting you at that given moment. Um, Repentance. uh, I hope I started off with it. I I repent much more openly um, to any degree that anyone in this room has been harmed by the academic environment and to the degree that I represent that. um, Please know that we're sorry. 
we've all been part of a, a system and a process that's been unfair to a lot of people. We want to do better, but we need you to hold us accountable. So please, um, I confess that to you. I've been part of it. I'm doing my best to change it. I often feel overwhelmed, but I can't tell you how much energy and support I get from just looking at your faces in this room. Slow down. Please slow down, <laughs> especially when it comes to text responses, email responses, etc. cetera. Um, it's not so much at this stage, but later on in life, um, where a hurried response can be more harmful than helpful. And then silence. There's a lot to be learned in silence. So I encourage you to work it into your day, um, because that's one of the safe spaces where God undoes a lot of the lies that you're tempted to believe. Um, so the last portion, I don't think there's a mic. This one can't be taken off. Um, that can walk around the room. But many people probably have experienced something uh, that you want to ask questions about. And when we did this in 2017, I think the group learned from each other. So if there's any particular question or something you hoped to get out of this session that I did not deliver on, please just raise your hand, and then maybe I'll repeat the question back if I can hear you. Uh, such a good question. Tell me your name. Caleb. So Caleb, um, I'm going to summarize in some ways. Um, you work in level three trauma, um, level one trauma, mostly with pediatric patients, but is of a nursing background. And his question relates to um, sort of the grief and um, atrocities of witnessing the most vulnerable in our population be harmed. Um, and either, you know, some of those deaths of children might be tragic, might be congenital, but I'm assuming if your experience is similar to mine, um, that some of those are abuse and trauma. Um, and his particular question is, I've noticed that I don't feel anything um, at times, not all the time, but at certain times. Um, and is this harmful? The answer is yes. This is um, when I said that I would mandate counseling for everyone. Um, the witnessing, the bearing witness to trauma and not being able to process it and the system that incentivizes us to numb and move on, to see the next patient get more work done, get more scans ordered, et cetera, is part of the brokenness of healthcare. And I don't know of a better way of dealing with it than counseling understanding trauma and learning how to process trauma um, through friends, through therapists, through spiritual directors, et cetera, et cetera. There is no, you know, in, this, in the psychiatric training world, they have something called supervision, and I've always been jealous because they have mandatory counseling as part of, because of what is they're encountering, um, such that it, it doesn't cause a transference um, of trauma. There is not that for military people, as far as I'm aware. There certainly isn't it for healthcare workers, and that's why the whole moral injury aspect of things that's borrowed from the military is so important. I think in healthcare, so the answer to your question is, is it harmful? Absolutely. I think the therapist in me, the therapeutic desire in me, wants to address it even though you're not asking, what do I do about it? I don't know what your resources are. Um, I know what your spiritual resources are. I know what your community resources are. I'm guessing based on, on the people in this room. Um, the first thing I would do is come up afterwards. I want to pray with you. Um, that's been my anchor. I couldn't, I definitely would not be here uh, if it wasn't for prayer. Before I was born, during my life, and 
every minute of every day. Um, so I want to pray with you. Um, I will pray for you specifically, Caleb, but also for everyone in the world of healthcare um, who's witnessing this, especially people that deal with the most vulnerable. Because the people that are called into those spheres have a heart to serve those individuals, and it's such a catastrophic loss when they become numb. Because we're creating robots, and we don't want to be robots. Like Andy Crouch talked about yesterday, the system wants you to be a machine. That's not who God designed you to be. Um, The way that you combat that, um, the intellectual way that we combat that is we tell you, you know, all these algorithms, your bosses will say, go do yoga for an hour. I love yoga. I'm not bad mouthing it. Um, But uh, uh, you can yoga your way out of burnout as if that's true. And that's not true. Um, You have spiritual resources. um, And I think this is, I'll speak about my experience. That's all I can do. As God reveals certain things to you, we're, you will be equipped through resources, counseling resources, uh, relational resources that will help you deal with that trauma. The critical portion of it, and I can't, I can't emphasize this enough, is just the awareness that this is happening. As soon as the penny drops that you know I am being bisected, my head from my heart, and that happened to me for probably seven to ten years, as I was getting patted on the back by my bosses for seeing more patients and doing more good work, et cetera, I was being systemically cut off from compassion and empathy. It is exactly what our patients need. It is exactly what the system incentivizes you not to do. The way to reconcile that for me boiled down to spiritual teaching first. God had a lot of things to teach me and then healing. And then once you have healed providers that know how to metabolize that information, it's amazing the entire system changes, and it, the system does not like it. I will tell you from my own experience um, when you start to talk about these things to bosses and leadership and resources, etc. That all empowerment comes later. Um, what, what's the most important thing is that you're paying attention to the numbing and that we not let it occur anymore. Thank you so much for that brilliant question. Are there any others? Oftentimes it happens over coffee, uh, sorry, uh, how your trauma gets addressed. So is, is my friend still here? Yeah. Uh, one of my friends in the back uh, uh, extracted things out of me that I didn't want to come out and began praying with me. And that's a lot of where it starts. It starts by sharing. You've got a lot of people here that are going to be praying, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, for you. Uh, and so... Uh, relational attunement in that regard, and then resources will come. Trust me, resources will come. Okay. There is another question. Yeah. Um, so, kind Is it Katie? I'm looking at your name tag. So Katie just asked a question. Um, her personality type is extroverted, but she said, how do you not carry the burdens of everyone that you're taking care of? Um, so I wanna, I'm going to address this with a dual mind, okay? So bear with me here. So, and this should be a slide if I'm ever giving a talk again, is 
the conditioning that we have that you are not supposed to be emotionally invested in your patients is a lie. All right? What makes you good at being a healer is that you do care. I have, I, you know, lose it with my patients sometimes. If I am not deeply hurting and grieving when they are telling me about feeling unsafe in a home with domestic violence, there's something fundamentally wrong with me, not just as a Christian, as a human. And so I think I'll nuance your question a little bit, Katie. One, I want to say this, you're not designed to not carry that burden for somebody. It's part of being a Christian, right? We carry each other's burdens. But boundaries, how much is too much to take on? And where do you draw those lines? And when you feel overwhelmed, as you will, when you are tired, hungry, beat up, and overworked, and you feel like you have very little to give, where does that line come? And this is where you have to draw out time. So the lies you'll believe is, I have 15 more patients to see, and I'm already four hours behind schedule. Okay, Um, I just have to wrap things up. This is, I can't fix systemic racism right now at 3 o'clock on a Friday. Um, That's where your mind will take you. Um, Breathing through that moment, I'll tell you I do this in both academic meetings when I feel pulled in multiple directions and I'm with someone who's very powerful and someone very needy at the same time and wondering how to steward my everything, is breathe. Breathe and pray. And one of the things that will happen is it's, it's very similar to meditation practices. It's strength, it lengthens out time, and it gives you a perspective that you would not have. You know, there's an Einstein quote. I keep a thousand quotes in my office, but one of them is, no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created it. And to improve your consciousness, your spiritual awareness of a situation that allows you resources and insights to solve problems that you are not wired to solve as you, Katie, with all your DNA and your family history and everything else, um, that's where the Holy Spirit starts supplying things that you don't feel like you have access to. That's the most um, salient way I can answer it right now. But the other thing that happens is talking about it with your fellow providers um, is creating systems around which you can create a better operating system for the patients that you're serving. Um, You absolutely cannot give what you don't have. So that that sense of um, this is too much, I'm taking on too much, is important. And that's where boundaries have to be drawn. Uh, to limit it so that you can attend to the people that are in front of you every single day. But our, we're, we're supposed to be emotionally invested. Not completely losing it, completely incapacitated that we can't take care of everyone. Um, but the old school way of thinking is check out emotionally. It's harmful. It's harmful to you. It's harmful to the people that you're taking care of. Okay. There's another one. Yeah. Um, so how do you go about explaining your calling to others in the field of medicine, uh, especially to non-believers or people who are opposed to Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, particularly like during an interview? During an interview. Okay, so what's your name? Joe. Joe. Joe asked a question about how I explain my calling to people. Um, and I, I suspect you're asking when I was younger and in the training world. Yes, more so, um, where you have to impress people and they may not have the same worldview as you, especially to Christians, to non-Christians. So there's a certain amount of confidence that just comes with age, the audacity of just being really, really secure in who you are. Not obnoxious, um, but 
there's a certain um, there's a humility in in health in people that are drawn to healthcare and medicine that occurs. So no one can take your story away from you. Just know that, and know that from all the admissions boards that I sit on, I the two values that I care about most, Christian or not, competence and character. And there are people that can articulate a calling that may be faith-based, that may not. Again, the metronome of your heart, slow it down. You're in an anxiety-provoking situation of the interview, slow down, okay? Um, hard to do, especially if someone's trying to move their pace of the day along. Okay, you're allowed to have your ground, all right? But articulating um, why you are pursuing the things that you're pursuing. So let me give you, let me be practical here. So where was I when I was interviewing? So I, I did something anomalous. I went to predominantly, um, I grew up in Texas, was hell-bent to get out of the Bible-thumping Southern Baptist environment. I'm going to be all truth here, uh, environment. So I went to a predominantly Jewish college, not that I was abandoning my faith at all, but I was just tired of people telling me, making me feel like I didn't fit in. And so my brother wisely said, you're already a double minority. Why do you want to make yourself a triple minority? Are you trying to espouse more um, challenge than you need to at critical stages? And I wasn't wise enough to think about it that way then. So I realized how important Jesus was to me um, in that college and um, decided to take a gap year. So during that gap year, I graduated a year early, but during that gap year, I worked for an internet startup and then I interviewed for medical school. And I had to explain, you know, during my interview process, what on earth was possessing me to go work in a hospital in northeast Ghana where there was barely electricity for a year. And that's the same thing I have to explain a lot now when I'm at work and people are like, ooh, this environment, not because I'm a Christian, it's just, it's a challenging environment for various reasons, but that's the cognitive tension that I was talking about. What on earth is motivating this person? Because your motivations are going to be very different than the person who's interviewing you. And what their incentives are to bring you on, to say yes to you as a candidate, there's a certain amount of needing to please the man, right, the system, and getting into the spot, and that's the positional authority, right? But a lie I believed is that I had to climb through the ranks in order to have authority and create change. That's not true. There's a certain amount of positional authority that, that brings power, and then adjudicating that power is one, one of the ways by which we create change and cultural reform. But again, with spiritual authority, the humblest student on rounds can bring us all to our knees with one statement that reminds us that we're going off track missionally in terms of serving the patient at hand. So don't underestimate that. I would say articulating what is true for you is the most important thing in an interview. And just like I told Katie, slowing down in the moment and responding to the spirit, there have been microseconds where I have literally said, Lord, I don't know whether I should bring this up or not. That's what I'm thinking in my head. Um, As people are either in an interview or I'm trying to make a decision, and again, slowing down a little bit, creating a little bit of distance will give you clarity and wisdom. And it trains you on how the spirit sounds. What does the voice of God sound like? Um, where, where am I being called? And you'll make mistakes. And you'll repent. And you get better at it, just like muscle growth. Does that make sense? And it's not like, you know, God is never going to shame you if you get embarrassed and don't 
don't mention, you know, scripture at a time where you're feeling called about it. But you will repent later in the day um, when you take time to reflect. That's where the money is, is those reflection moments where you get a chance to hear from God about what you were believing in the moment. I took that slide out, but that's an important question to ask yourself in those tense moments is, what am I believing right now? Am I believing that this professor can take away the fact that I am loved and adored by the God of the universe? If that's true, (laughs) I need to repent, and I need to fill my tank over what's really true. Other questions? Yeah. How do you recommend answering a patient who is spiritual, who asks, why is God letting this happen? Ooh, such a good question. What's your name? John. John asked the question, how do you respond to a patient who is spiritual, who asks a question, um, why is God letting this happen to me? And this goes back to the Rachel Naomi Remen quote. I would say 10 years ago, I would have been a lot less adept at answering that question than I am now. And hopefully I am now a lot less adept than I will be in 10 years. But oftentimes, because you are bringing authority to that relationship, again, listening to it and thanking them for struggling with that question openly in front of you is step number one, just acknowledging it. Um, acknowledging the fact that uh, you are hurt, to Caleb's point as well, that you are hurt by the fact that they are suffering and bad things are happening to them and that you struggle with that for them as well. That is compassion in action. And then um, if it's appropriate, again, as you are led by the Holy Spirit, to share. Um, So what's operating in you is your awareness of Something awful that happened to you, John, and you questioning God and shaking your fist in his face and saying, why did that happen to me? Are you really a good father? And how you, if it's a Christian context of spirituality, that's one way. But you'll learn new skill sets as you deal with people with very different faith backgrounds about, again, how they receive love. And so struggling with someone and acknowledging the fact that it's unfair and wrong And that is exactly why you are called into what you are doing, because you hate disease, you hate death, you hate destruction, and you are called into not making that true, into making that untrue, into renewing all of those things, um, is an area where there will be a gap, because you can't answer that question for them, but what you are doing is sharing very tender space with them such that they can receive spiritual knowledge. The burden is not on you. You don't have to have the answers. That's the secret. Like, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to fix every disease. It is just like Jesus is to us, going alongside someone in a journey, in a process. It's being a good friend. The same skills that you're learning here this weekend are going to make you excellent providers. And trust me, there aren't enough vulnerable providers out there. Any other questions? Otherwise, I'll hang out up front. Yes. Uh, you talked a little bit about your portable sanctuary. Yeah. Um, and just removing lies. Yeah. Um, that by noon will be removed. Can you just explain a little bit more about what that looks like? Yeah, and this is where um, I sort of internally rolled my eyes and repented immediately when I, the habit book came up last night because I'm like, oh no, don't teach them just to stick on more behaviors if they're not getting to the root of what's happening. So, so the, the moving sanctuary, planes usually, long-haul flights, 
I got over sitting in the middle seat and weeping through a six-hour flight a long time ago, making the people around me uncomfortable as I have my my book um, and whatever is going on. So it's very... uh, What's your name? Harrison. Harrison. It's very specific to how you um, receive messages from God. Um, And so a a moving sanctuary for me is quiet space. There's something ethereal about being high up for me. So it happens a lot when I'm above the clouds. And I live on the sixth floor of an 18-floor building, but I go up to my roof a lot in New York. Um, That helps my prayer life a lot because I always feel like I'm just one brown woman in this city of 11 million people. Do you really see me? Do you hear me? Um, And maybe on the roof, I feel like God sees me a little bit more, and it helps me pray by sector for fashion, finance, et cetera, based on what I'm looking at at the city. And any of you are welcome. If you're in New York, come to my roof and we'll pray together. Um, So the sanctuary is dependent on where you receive messages from God. That's learning and growth for you. Um, A lot of it happens in quiet spaces. When I did the Gotham Fellowship, this theological program, I think even the extreme extroverts found like they imbibed a lot of information in quiet times. There's something about stillness and silence where God can multiply teaching to you. So that what that sanctuary looks like is going to be very specific for you. Places where you feel safe, really, really safe, because you have to feel safe if you're going to listen, if God can teach you anything. And then undoing lies. I used to call it praying the disconnects and things like that. There was, again, it's the awareness. And I underestimated awareness um, for many decades um, until there's something about the impact of the city that can sometimes either make you numb or enhance awareness of certain things. Um, Let me give you a very specific example. So I had uh, moved to New York in June of 2010. And it was the first place in my life where I ever felt comfortable in my own skin. And I um, was aware that I wasn't really fully owning what I looked like. Lots of racial trauma, lots of other trauma in childhood. God was working out, um, starting the process of working out. But I know one of the things that just sort of hit me over the head is how many people would stop and compliment some aspect of my physical nature and how uncomfortable that made me feel. And New York is a city with, like, gorgeous models and blah, blah, blah. And I just... The frequency with which those comments were coming at me made me very uncomfortable. And it was easy for me to numb or check out and, and dismiss, like probably many women do. Um, what's their motivation, et cetera, et cetera. But again, the frequency was happening so much that I was like, Lord, I feel like something's wrong with me. Um, and so my prayer for about a year and a half before God answered it was like, Lord, I need, I need to understand how you see me. I don't want to see myself as in the model community or in the finance community or in the healthcare community or she's pretty for a scientist or whatever false human ideal is. Um, I need to understand how you see me because I'm scared. And so God took me on a whole long journey, still incomplete, about owning that. Um, the other thing is when I was sitting in church, I'll give you a very clear example Uh, I was at Redeemer, and Tim Keller was giving a sermon, and he used a phrase. And he said, until you feel the love of God sloshing around in your heart. And I, I have been churched. That's all I knew growing up. But something about that day and the way he said it and my heart, it just made me realize I have never felt sloshing. I don't know that I'm capable of feeling sloshing love. Um, And again, you have to go back to scripture. And I was like, okay, Lord, did I miss the gospel? 
uh, growing up in the church, there are times that I feel like I did. And I would look at how much God loves me in the word, and I knew it here. I did not know it here. So again, for two to three years, my sole prayer, my prayers are largely just one sentence, is, Lord, uh, my love receptors seem to be broken. I do not slosh. There is not this expanded experience of love that your word says that you have for me. I feel fundamentally broken. I don't know what happened, but I'm naming the problem, and it's on you to fix it. I call the Holy Spirit to the carpet all the time. This is your job. It is my job to name it and say, this is what the Father has promised me, and I'm not experiencing it. And if it's on me, if it's something I need to do or say, I need you to be more obvious. I need you to make it clearer to me. If I am missing the message, please surface it. And so that's, for me, the morning time is very specific, and that's where I try to do a lot. I always pray, Lord, humiliate me in private so I don't get humiliated in public. And so a lot of that repentance and areas of disbelief that I think got talked about in this morning's session, um, it's easy to hear messages around believing lies and believing truth and not belief, but just have compassion for yourself a little bit and understand you're not believing for, for legitimate reasons, um, oftentimes. And it's that's where the Holy Spirit can do some work in healing as to what's undergirding your resistance to believing. Yeah. I'm giving Caleb a hug. Is anybody else? Yes. All right. We're way over time. You're welcome to hang out, ask me private questions, get a hug, give a hug. Be well.